the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. He's doing a little engineering today as well. Sam Moppin, he's the guy. He's the engineer for today's program. And uh, we're glad to have you with us. Today, I'm looking forward to a conversation later this hour with Ron Post. He has uh, published a new book, Unchanged, A Man's Journey from Abuse to Healing to Saving Lives. He founded Medical Teams International. Uh, and Mission Increase, and he'll join us to talk about his story, which is really quite fascinating and hopeful for those of us who want to make a difference in the world. So he's going to be joining us later this hour. We'll also uh, take a look at the headline news, a prayer for Nigeria that's being called for by a Nigerian who says things are very difficult there and is calling on the body of Christ. And we'll take a look at the Asbury uh, revival, an update on what's happening now and what some are concerned might be happening. So we'll get into that later in the program as well. Well, third century Roman priest Valentinius was brutally beaten and beheaded after marrying couples in defiance of Emperor Claudius. His uh, ban on the sacrament of marriage on this day in history, February 14th, 270 A.D., I know it's not very romantic to consider that he was brutally beaten to death and beheaded, but this is the anniversary of that event. When Valentine's actions were discovered, Claudius II ordered that he be put to death, uh, history tells us. So Valentine was arrested and dragged before the prefect of Rome who condemned him to be beaten to death with clubs and to have his head cut off. The sentence was carried out on the 14th of February on or about the year 270. The execution of the priest committed to, to betrothal uh, is celebrated around the world as St. Valentine's Day. The celebration of romance has been secularized in recent decades as Valentine's Day. Well, the holiday's association with uh, roses and romantic um, notions stands in sharp contrast to St. Valentine's grisly execution or the contemporary fixation with the saint's dismembered body parts. Cathedrals in as many as five different countries claim to house various remains of St. Valentine's. Well, that uh, story of his martyrdom for uniting uh, lovers in defiance of the emperor is one of several popular versions of the origin of St. Valentine's Day, each rooted in truth, but shrouded by two millennia of poorly recorded history. There are, for example, two different martyred St. Valentines venerated on the 14th of February. The holiday may be a blend of their two tales of martyrdom, although no such uh, not much of St. Valentine's life is reliably known. And whether or not the stories involve two different saints by the same name is also not officially decided. It's highly agreed that St. Valentine was martyred and then buried in the Via Flamina uh, in the northern part of Rome, according to Catholic.com. Uh, they published a, a nonprofit, uh, Your Catholic Voice Foundation piece. Well, at least one source cites a third St. Valentine of the same era martyred in Africa. The exact date of St. Valentine's execution is unknown, but it is traditionally celebrated or at least acknowledged on the 14th of 
February. In 469 A.D., Pope Galatius marked February 14th as a celebration in honor of his martyrdom. The date is widely recognized as a day for love, devotion, and romance. It's celebrated as a day of romance. It's traced by many scholars to a poem penned in 1375 by Middle English writer Geoffrey Chaucer, best known as the author of The Canterbury Tales. For this was sent to St. Valentine Day, when every fowl cometh there to choose his mate, the father of English literature wrote, and Parliament of Fowls, or something very like that, F-O-U-L-E-S, I'm not an English major, which traced the mating of birds in mid-February. In any event, during Chaucer's time in history, courtly love flourished and couples took the occasion to express their love for one another in the form of flowers, candies, and cards. The appeal of St. Valentine's Day as a day of to honor love has spread far beyond the Christian world, as you well know. It's been celebrated for decades, for example, in the largely Hindu nation of India as well, perhaps not understanding its origin. Government officials there have asked citizens to celebrate the day by hugging cows to better promote Hindu. February 14th has been dubbed um, Cow Hug Day in India this year. St. Valentine's is the patron saint of... Um, Couples, beekeepers, uh, engaged couples, epilepsy, fainting, greeting, happy marriages, love, lovers, plague, travelers, and young people. In the Catholic tradition, he's represented in pictures with birds and roses. And there's another side of the story. Behind the rosy facade of Valentine's Day is the mysterious and grisly story of his um, of his death uh, and his body parts being scattered all across Europe. We won't go into much more of that, but that is the day uh, that we celebrate. Well, some of us, I know James Blend and his wife don't acknowledge it in any form. Nonetheless, that's Valentine's Day. Well, I woke up this morning fully expecting there'd be at least a smattering of snow on the ground. I was prepared to sniffle and say, oh, I'm not sure I can make it in. Didn't happen, at least not in my part of the country. Portland metro area saw a dusting of one Well, one inch of snow in some of the higher elevations on Monday night through early Tuesday morning, according to a meteorologist here locally. Sticking snow reports show a scattered pattern. The Willamette Valley floor, including downtown Portland, had uh, had not seen sticking snow as of 6 a.m. this morning. Temperatures held mostly at about 32 degrees. So disappointment ensued. Uh, The last snow band is expected to um, to drop south towards Salem by this uh, this morning, according to meteorologists, the snow level overnight, uh, it held um, close to 500 feet. And for most of us, there was nothing. There were some delays in school openings, but beyond that, not much else. I was so ready. Governor Tina Kotek today ordered um, all flags, uh, actually it was yesterday, all flags at Oregon public institutions be flown at half staff until sunset the 15th to honor Gresham firefighter Brandon Norbury, who died after suffering cardiac arrest while on duty. Uh, Brandon Norbury dedicated his life to the service of others, and after graduating high school, he joined the U.S. Navy, ultimately becoming a member of the elite Navy SEAL Team 2. During his military service, he received his emergency medical technician paramedic certification and was honorably discharged in 2000 after 10 years of service to his country. In 2001, he graduated from the police academy in Monmouth. He joined the Gresham Police Department. During his seven years with the department, he served as a patrol officer, firearms and taser instructor. 
department armorer and a member of and instructor for the police department's tactical team. He joined the Gresham Fire Department in 2008 and fearlessly served as a Gresham firefighter and paramedic for many years, I believe nearly 15, uh, spending most of his time at Station 31 and Station 76. Brandon Norbury. If you notice the uh, flags flying at half staff, government buildings, that's why. Thank you for serving. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Also coming up later this hour, a conversation with Ron Post, founder of Northwest Medical Teams and author of Unchained, A Man's Journey from Abuse to Healing to Saving Lives. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina and U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, announced today, this morning, that she is running for the Republican presidential nomination, saying it's time for a new generation of leadership. Well, in a nearly four-minute video address posted on Twitter, Haley announced her 2024 campaign by standing up for the country's founding principles, calling for a change in the nation's politics and pitching herself as a new kind of leader who will not put up with bullies. And when you uh, kick back, it hurts them more than it uh, than you're wearing heels, uh, Haley said, who would be the first female president if elected. She's the first Asian-American woman to become governor in U.S. history, is the first Republican to jump in the race to challenge former President Donald Trump. There will be others. And by the way, he is her former boss, who announced her candidacy, or rather he announced his candidacy in November. With her call for a new generation of leadership, uh, she, at 51, took a veiled swipe at both Trump at 76 and President uh, Joe Biden, who is 80 and the oldest person ever to serve as president. She also called for a new direction for the Republican Party, which she notes has lost the uh, the popular vote in the uh, last um, Seven out of eight presidential elections. That has to change, she said. She started the announcement by recalling her childhood in Bamberg, South Carolina, the state she served as governor from 2011 to 2016. The railroad tracks divided the town by race. I was the proud daughter of Indian immigrants, not black, not white. I was different. She says in her beginning clip, but my mom, who always says your job is not to focus on the differences, but the similarities. And my parents reminded me of my siblings every day, how blessed we were to live in America. Well, over um, images of the New York Times 1619 project, a burning American flag and an angry Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she said that some look at our past as evidence that America's founding principles are bad. They say the promise of freedom is just made up. Some think our ideas are not just wrong, but racist and evil. Nothing could be further from the truth. Haley went on to say that she's been she's seen real evil, noting genocide in China, government sanctioned murders in Iran. Even on our worst day, we are blessed to live in America. Uh, she um, is going to be running against uh, Former President Trump, she's the first so far uh, to announce, but again, there will be others. It's expected there will be fewer than the last time around, but there certainly will be others in that competition. Meanwhile, former Vice President Mike Pence is preparing to challenge a grand jury subpoena issued by special counsel Jack Smith, the federal prosecutor charged with investigating Donald Trump's alleged election interference, as well as the former president's potential mishandling of classified documents. The former vice president's legal challenge rests not on executive privilege, but rather on his former legislative role as president of the Senate, according to a report. 
Pence's uh, advisors argue that a constitutional provision known as the speech or debate clause shields congressional officials from legal proceedings stemming from their work. Cooperating with federal prosecutors may jeopardize the separation of powers outlined in the Constitution, they argue. Uh, The former vice president thinks that the speech or debate clause is a core protection for Article One for the legislature. An anonymous source familiar with the matter told Politico he feels it uh, really goes to the heart of some separation of powers issues. He feels duty bound to maintain that protection, even if it means litigating it. Well, the legal maneuvering would be the first time it's ever been clearly expressed that the vice president is claiming his own constitutional privilege, according to a former aide of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, The novel legal challenge comes after an, an ABC report that said Smith had reached an agreement concerning the subpoena after several months of negotiations with the former vice president's legal team. However, the FBI search of Pence's personal residence in Carmel, Indiana, on Friday seems to have changed the former vice president's demeanor. He initially cooperated with federal authorities following the discovery of about a dozen classified documents at his home in January, contacting the National Archives soon after they were found. Well, Vice President Pence was unaware of the existence of sensitive or classified documents at his personal residence. That's a quote from a representative of the vice president. He's told the National Archives in a letter, uh, Vice President Pence understands the high importance of protecting sensitive and classified information and stands ready and willing to cooperate fully with the National Archives in any appropriate inquiry. Following the FBI search of the former vice president's home, one additional classified document was found. However, sources close to the matter say that the growing drama surrounding the ongoing investigation into Trump's potential mishandling of classified material is prompting Pence to reconsider his approach. As long as Trump remains the Republican Party's central personality, Pence doesn't want to be seen as overly cooperative with federal prosecutors ahead of what many anticipate to be his own 2024 presidential run. Lots to look forward to. Public schools and teachers across the nation are facing a tangible lag in education of our children. Students are not meeting standards and goals that have been in place for years. In fact, they're falling far short. Some try to blame it entirely on the COVID pandemic and the subsequent school shutdowns. But the reality is that these educational shortcomings have been brewing for decades. Emmy Griffin suggests that the pedagogy is flawed. This is the a kindergarten on up um, issue. Children are not uh, proficient in math. They are struggling to read. And yet teachers and schools are passing these students on to the next grade. Uh, and there's a pattern that continues up the chain. The result is that 18-year-olds whose reading comprehension is abysmal and whose math skills will set them up for folly are expected to go on to college and enter the workforce. Faddish changes in curriculum are part of the problem without going too deep into the weeds. Math and reading have strayed away from tried and true methods such as rote memorization, such as basic addition, subtraction, multiplication and division, sounding out intentional and meaningful phonics as well as sight word memorization and recognition, the intrinsic connection of encoding and decoding, writing and reading, and most importantly, mastery of all these fundamental skills before moving a child to a more complicated concept. Then there is social-emotional education, an extraneous addition that takes time away from core subjects. Schools are also taking away subjects that spark joy and curiosity, that adds to the learning experience, such as art, music, and physical education. Another facet is the lack of education for teachers. Saying this uh, is tricky because teaching is a skill that is developed over time. 
There are some naturally good teachers, but even they are learning on the on the job. Public schools, however, have a way of overcomplicating an already challenging vocation between overcrowded classrooms, lack of support from the administration and increasingly poor student behavior. Teachers are quitting in droves. There's also a particularly distinct lack of education for teachers in meeting the academic needs of children who've learned learning difficulties. With students in the early grades, um, you're lucky if you have several mentors who showed some of the techniques to truly help students who would otherwise be struggling. This is called differentiation. Differentiating in the classroom is also fraught with its own political navigation. Children are smart and very easily internalize their educational need as reflection of their own self-worth. Parents weigh, uh, weigh in on differentiating decisions, which can be a good and a bad thing without a level of Uh, Competence on the teacher's part and trust on the part of the parent, communication and effective intervention quickly break down. Well, these are just some of the issues that are of concern. Not every public school is bad and not every public school teacher is poorly equipped to teach. However, some are. And as a result, the children entrusted to them are not flourishing. And then, of course, there's the system itself that makes it a challenge for those who are dedicated to teaching others well. Columbia University received intense backlash online after a resurfaced video showed medical students reciting a revised version of the Hippocratic Oath that included tenets of critical race theory. The video, posted by nonprofit uh, My Think Informed Milwaukee, shows the uh, Lejos students, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, class of 2025, during a white coat ceremony, reciting an oath led by Lisa Melman, doctor, a senior associate dean for students' affairs, and the Samuel Rudin Professor of Psychiatry. Well, according to the news release, and you can find it on YouTube, uh, on the uh, Columbia University Irving Medical Center website, the ceremony was the first in the medical school's 255-year history that the incoming medical students recited their personalized class oath, a, a spin on the Hippocratic Oath, to better reflect the values students wish to uphold as they enter their medical training, or at least someone wishes them to uphold. It was a rather interesting oath to uh, uh, to hear. We're going to take a break here. I'm looking forward in just a few moments to a conversation with Ron Post. He's the founder of Northwest Medical Teams, now Medical Teams International, and Mission Increase. He's the author most recently of Unchained, A Man's Journey from Abuse to Healing to Saving Lives. Ron Post, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's a new memoir from Medical Teams International founder that details how he went from abuse victim to saving lives around the world. Well, in his new memoir, Unchained, A Man's Journey from Abuse to Healing to Saving Lives, Ron Post admits that he should not have been the founder of a global medical humanitarian organization. He never envisioned receiving the National Jefferson Award for being a changemaker or being named one of America's unsung heroes by Newsweek magazine. He was a simple businessman with a family when he one evening news story forever altered his life. Well, we're going to hear more about that story. Ron Post founded Medical Teams International and Mission Increase, his worldwide work in humanitarian uh, in the humanitarian. Humanities, I should say, earned him two honorary doctorates, one from Northwest Christian College and the second from Lewis and Clark College, the 1,000 Points of Light Award presented by President George W. Bush, the World Service Medal by Kiwanis International, the National Jefferson Award, and was named one of America's unsung heroes 
by Newsweek. He and his wife, Jean, have three children and, at this writing, six grandchildren. They reside right here in Oregon, uh, where they have continued to serve their communities while serving the world. I am so delighted to uh, welcome Ron Post to the program today. Thank you for joining us. Well, hi, Georgine. It's good to talk to you again. It's good to talk to you as well. I have to tell you, I've been thrilled all day just anticipating uh, having this opportunity. Uh, This is a wonderful book, but there are some things I think many of your readers will find surprising. You might get a little glimpse in the subtitle of the book, A Man's Journey from Abuse to Healing to Saving Lives. Yours is a story that is unexpected, but uh, thrilling to hear how God has used you in ways that even you didn't anticipate. Yes, it has been a a wonderful uh, experience, and yes, I did come from a life that was had childhood abuse in it. And um, but through finding Christ as my Savior, uh, I was able to find forgiveness for those who um, did hurt me, and go on to uh, live a life of meaning and purpose. You and your wife are watching a news accounts of what we now refer to as the killing fields of Cambodia. Now, many of us saw that same newsreel. We were moved by it. We were horrified by the images we were seeing. But for you, it was a different experience. Tell us about how you watched that unfold on television and how that moved you in a direction that you had not anticipated. Well, first of all, just a, just a businessman watching news one night of the killing fields of Cambodia and um, there, was, there was a scene that came on, Georgine, that um, appeared to be a perhaps a, a teenage girl in, in, that they were picking up out of a rice field that maybe had starved to death. And at that time, I looked over on the couch where my 16-year-old daughter lay, and I thought, that could have been my daughter mm-hmm. there. And um, as as I pondered that, it was like someone handed me a plan that I was to raise up medical teams and take them there and help those people. And it it floored me. Uh, it was so strong. And when I finally could blurt it out to my wife and said, honey, this is what I feel like I'm called to do. She said, yes, I've been thinking that we need to do something. We've You've got to do this, Ron. And that was the beginning of God opening doors, unbelievable doors to make it happen. Yeah, it really is remarkable. You write that you felt utterly unqualified at the enormity of the task, and yet you picked up the phone and you made a phone call, and that sort of got, it was an act of obedience, and that got the ball rolling. Tell us how it started. I believe you called a local reporter? I did. I called uh, the reporter that I had seen the newscast, and um, it was about 11 o'clock at night. And he would later say, you know, you get a lot of calls at 11 o'clock at night. But he said somehow when this man told me what he wanted to do, uh, I felt like I need to listen to him. And so after hearing my story that I felt I was supposed to raise up medical teams, he said, why don't you call Mike Donahue at KOIN-TV in Portland? And tell him. And I thought, okay. And I did, but never thought I would get through to Mike. But the, the Lord had already opened the door. <laughs> and and the, when the phone rang, Mike picked up the phone. 
And I told him my story again of how I felt led to raise up a medical team and take him over there. And Mike Donahue, who is now a dear, dear friend uh, and brother in the Lord, Mike says, Ron, why don't you call a news conference and tell people? And so, <laughs> never having done that before, I did. I called a news conference the next day and, and went there, uh, actually, to talk to a couple of uh, missionary doctors about uh, this. And when I got there, I, I had forgotten to tell them <laughs> that the news <laughs> team might be there. And they were quite upset with me, by the way. And I really felt bad. I apologized. But we sat down at this table, and I began, and here's all the TV stations and the newspaper there. It, it, was, uh, it was beyond my, uh, my uh, reasoning or understanding, but God had placed them there. And actually, uh, Georgine, the media God used to propel Northwest Medical Teams, now called Medical Teams International, uh, and did that for years and years and years. Uh, God used the media to help build Medical Teams International, and so from that um, from that press re- uh, conference, uh, uh, they said it'll be on the news tonight. Um, they said, "Well, give me a phone number, and we'll uh, we'll put it on the screen." And I lived in Salem not Portland. I thought, oh gosh, I could give my home phone, but it's a long distance call. By the way, young people wouldn't understand that today. Uh, It would be a long distance call. And so I called a friend uh, who worked for the phone company. I said, Woody, they're going to put this thing on, I think on the news tonight, and I I need a toll-free number. And he said, oh yeah, I could help you, Ron. Uh, Probably take about two weeks. Oh no, Woody. (laughs) And he said, what do you want, Ron? I said, I need it tonight. He said, that's impossible. I said, well, could you try, Woody? And a few hours later, he called me back and said, okay, I got it. You got two two toll-free lines. And so my beautiful wife, who has now gone to be with the Lord, uh, December 5th last year, mm-hmm. um, and I sat at a table in a borrowed office space and put our television screen on there on the table, and it came on at six o'clock. And after they told what we were trying to do to take a team to Cambodia, um, he said, "Here's a number you can call." The phone started ringing off the hook, and people were saying, "Hi, I'm an attorney, Rick Stein. Can I come down and just empty waste paper cans, whatever you want?" And another said, "Hi, I'm Ed Cameron." I, uh, I'd like to come down and volunteer. I said, come on down. Someone called and said, I'm a doctor. I want to volunteer. Someone called and said, I, I want to give to this. And this re- continued for, oh, two two weeks. And we raised $250,000 back in 1979. That's incredible. So it was it was a miracle, Georgine. It was a miracle. Well, since then, Northwest Medical Teams, now Medical Teams International, has served countless uh, lives in countries around the world, most recently in war-torn Ukraine and in Uganda uh, as the Ebola virus reemerges. Could you have imagined in those early days when you're watching a newscast and God prompts you to do something in response to what you're seeing, 
that the the ministry, the organization that you began would have such a significant impact all around the world for decades to come? No, I would have never dreamed that. Uh, I thought it was just a one-time thing. We'd take a team over there, we'd help, we'd come home. And and basically I did. I came home and went back to my business. And it took another three, four years for God to really get my attention and say, Ron, I I want this to be a permanent Mm -hmm. mission. But it took me a a little while to understand that. And uh, what kicked the next one off was the great famine of Ethiopia in 1985, and that would propel us into a, a, um, a ministry full-time. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, let's talk about your experience in Ethiopia that left an impression on you that has remained to this day. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Ron Post. He is beloved in our community and around the world. His new book, Unchained, A Man's Journey from Abuse to Healing to Saving Lives, and he has done that in ways that uh, just have been a blessing all around the world. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. We're talking with Ron Post. He has a new memoir, and we are excited to introduce Unchained, A Man's Journey from Abuse to Healing to Saving Lives that tells his story from start to finish in ways that will inspire and challenge you. Now, you write about an experience you had in Ethiopia, a camp there with over 150,000 hungry people. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that experience where every morning over 1,400 mothers with starving babies and children would line up as you offered medical attention and other um, uh, necessary items. Tell us a bit about that story. Georgine, that was one of the greatest tragedies of our lifetime. Hundreds of thousands of people were dying of starvation from uh, crop failure uh, and also civil war. And um, we were there to help these people with our medical teams uh in one particular area of a camp we worked in, there was a feeding center where we were taking in the most neediest uh, babies and children for intensive feeding. And so every morning there would be about 1,400 women with their babies that would line up in rows hoping to be admitted to the feeding center because their baby was so malnourished. And our nurses would go down through the lines. I mean, they'd feel between the fingers of the babies for fat content. And then from that, they would choose 200 to 250 of the worst cases when they all were worst cases, knowing that the ones that they didn't choose may die by tomorrow. And yet they could only take 250 uh, new cases every year, in every day, into the uh, feeding center. And so they would make their choice of the 250, go off in the corner and cry over those that were left that they knew might not make it. It was a heart-wrenching experience, and we all shed many tears over that. But uh, that's all we could do at that time. You write about um, an incident in which um, a woman was approaching you with a bucket uh, that she was hoping to be filled with grain so that she and perhaps her loved ones 
could survive. She didn't make it past uh, approaching you, and that bucket wasn't filled because she died at your feet. Yes, it, she did, Georgine, and it was seared on my mind forever. I still have an image of her in my mind uh, that she died at my feet with a black bucket that mm. she had brought to get the grain, and that bucket was only a couple of inches from her hand. They took a photo of it and gave it to me later, and I've kept it ever since. Um, she had come seeking grain, and um, the Lord impressed upon me for years after that, Ron, there are millions of empty buckets in our world, and I want you to help fill those buckets. And I want you to tell people that there are empty buckets needing filled all over this world, even in your in your neighborhood, and that you are called by God to fill those buckets. That's our calling. Um, we are to love our God and love our neighbor. And so that was seared into my memory forever. I'll never forget it. Just reading it, it's seared in my memory as well. I had the opportunity to serve on the board with um, Medical Teams International before the name change. And during the name change, I traveled uh, with Northwest Medical Teams. And I, I, I can't tell you what a blessing it was to witness firsthand the work that's being done and uh, what an imprint that that put on my heart. And it just seared you as a, a, a hero to me. Uh, for many, many years. I imagine there are some of our listeners who think, you know, if you knew my background, if you knew how old I am, there's no way that God could use me. Even if I were to hear his voice calling me in some way, I can't imagine myself qualified. You sort of address that in the book Unchained as well. Those who imagine that perhaps their background, uh, what they've suffered in the past, or maybe they've disqualified themselves because of their age. How do you respond to those who are reluctant because they've already decided, no, God would never use me? Oh, you know, Georgine, God, (laughs) Paul, the apostle, was very clear about that. He, He fought to the very end. Uh, because he knew he had to finish the race. And we all are in a race. God's called us all to this race of, of life. And we, can, we, can, we need to finish strong in it. Um, it. The Bible says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God uh, prepared in advance for us to do. We were created to do good works. God's called us to do that. And when I do that, when you do that, or anyone does that, that's what we're doing to fulfill God's calling on our own lives. And there are so many buckets to be filled. Mm. I think you're... I pray... Please, go ahead. Yes. Well, I just pray that people will understand that it is wonderful, and you're never too old to begin Uh, There are so many people. My dear, blessed wife, Jean, uh, when she retired from medical teams, uh, she does such great work at medical teams, she didn't just sit down. She heard one Sunday about the uh, shut-ins in our church, and and she thought, I I need to send them a card encouraging them. And so she bought a ton of cards, Georgine, (laughs) and she would sit and write by the hour, encouraging people uh, that are shut-ins, and she would mail them to her. 
you are never too old. There are people in the warehouse at Medical Chains International right now who are volunteering untold hours. I've talked to people that that have volunteered there for 10 years, 15 years, and they love what they're doing in helping them with packing medical supplies and getting them shipped off. And, of course, right now, Medical Teams is helping, as we speak, with the earthquake victims in Turkey. And, you know, they need volunteers to go in there and help them to do that great work they do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I tell you, it's uh, just amazing to consider what God can do when there's a willing heart you were a businessman, your course was set, you were successful at what you were doing, and yet God said, I want you to do this, and you were willing to do it. And that, it seems to me, is the main ingredient, a willing and open heart and compassion to do what God is calling you to do. Well, I'm just thankful that I did, Georgine. Uh, it is the greatest step I ever made in my life, and I encourage other people to take that step because you know, even the, the great mobile medical uh, dental units mm-hmm. that uh, medical teams has, there are wonderful volunteer opportunities on those dental vans. Um, dentists volunteer their time to, to help on that van so that people can of low income can have dental care. There's so much that we can do, and, and I, you'll never feel better about your life than when you reach out to help another person. That's absolutely true. In addition to um, Medical Teams International, you are also responsible for founding Mission Increase that's offered um, help to ministries, assisting them with biblical fundraising. And that has had a tremendous impact for other nonprofit organizations that are ministering to people around the world. It's been exciting. In 1999, uh, along with my dear friends, Dale and Gail Stockcamp, we co-founded Mission Increase because we wanted to help Christian ministries to grow in their biblical fundraising. And it begins with, uh, it is more blessed to give than to receive, to let them know that those wonderful partners who are helping them in their ministry are partners in in the ministry. And we, we work to try to show them how important those partners are. And so we give them free workshops uh, in all aspects of fundraising. And it's been wonderful how they've grown eight, ten times uh, their size uh, after taking these workshops. And so right now, Mission Increase is training somewhere around 3,500 ministries a year across the United States in biblical fundraising, and uh, it's making an impact uh, in non-profit, Christian nonprofits. Well, if I were to think of one word to describe your work in this uh, in this life, it would be impact. You have had a significant impact, not only in the ministry that has gone forth from uh, this part of the world outward, but also in the lives of those who've had the opportunity to work with you, to um, enjoy the fruit of your legacy. And I'm so grateful that we can claim you as an Oregonian and that you have written this book to help us better understand uh, how you arrived at um, the successful ministry uh, that you've been engaged in for many, many years. Once again, the book is called Unchained, A Man's Journey from Abuse to Healing to Saving Lives. Where can our listeners find Unchained? They can go to Amazon 
and order it, or they can go to ronpost.org, ronpost.org, where they not only can order it, Georgine, but we post two new devotions a week on that website that's free, and they can enjoy those devotions. And I pray that it strengthens everyone that will read them. And so ronpost.org, they can order the book or Amazon. Ron Post, thank you so much for the work that you are doing and have done and for taking time to join us here today. Thank you, Georgine. God bless. Bye-bye. Bless you. Oh, love that guy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, so stay with us. We've got more on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to take a look at what's happening in Asbury and whether or not that revival, as it's being described, has continued. We'll also uh, take a look at a plea by a pastor in Nigeria begging the church, the body of Christ, please pray for Nigeria. That's coming up later this hour as well. Well, the State Department is urging Americans to evacuate Russia. The State Department issued a stark warning, this was on Monday, to all U.S. citizens there, urging them to leave immediately amid heightened concerns about wrongful detentions. For Americans mulling a trip to Russia, the department didn't mince words. Do not travel to Russia. Although it's not clear why officials released the updated travel advisory, military leaders rather have been sounding alarms that Russia is gearing up for a major escalation in its bloody war against neighboring Ukraine. The State Department issued a travel advisory set at the highest of four levels ahead of President Biden's expected visit to Poland to mark the anniversary of the massive assaults beginning. Well, the advisory cites the potential for harassment and the singling out of U.S. citizens for detention by Russian government security officials, the arbitrary enforcement of local law, limited flights into and out of Russia, the embassy's limited ability to assist U.S. citizens in Russia and the possibility of terrorism. Well, the death toll from earthquakes in Turkey and Syria has reached 35,000. Now, some have set that number considerably higher. That's a conservative estimate. The death toll from the earthquake that hit Turkey and Syria passed the number on Monday as only a handful of survivors were pulled from the rubble more than a week after the disaster that devastated swaths of both countries. Turkey's disaster agency said Monday that more than 31,500 had been recorded killed in that country. The Syrian health ministry reported 1,400 deaths, and the White Helmets, a volunteer rescue group in rebel-held regions of the country, reported another 2,100 deaths. The death toll was expected to climb. Well, inflation is up 6.4%. The year-over-year inflation rate continued slowly falling over the last uh, few months, dropping one-tenth of a point on January, or rather in January, to 6.4 percent. One leading driver of inflation is the rising cost of housing. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, housing costs account for more than one-third of the index, rising 0.7 percent in January and 7.9 percent over the last year at this time. The rising cost of energy was also a big factor as it rose 2 percent over the prior month and 8.7 percent over last year. Food prices also contributed as they went up 0.5 percent in January, equating to a 10.1 percent increase over last year. To make matters worse, average hourly wages slipped 0.2 percent for the month and are down 1.8 percent from a year ago. Well, given this stubborn inflation, the Federal Reserve will presumably continue its practice of raising interest rates, likely by another half percent. 
Of course, this news flies in the face of the rosy economic picture the president painted in his State of the Union address last week when he boasted, here at home, inflation is coming down. Here at home, gas prices are down $1.50 a gallon since their peak. Food inflation is coming down. Inflation has fallen every month for the last six months while take-home pay has gone up, end quote. Instead, many economists continue to express fears of a coming recession, with the only debate being over how severe it will be. The latest Medal of Honor recipient, retired U.S. Army Colonel Paris Davis, received a call from Joe Biden on Monday, informing him that he will receive the Medal of Honor for his remarkable heroism during the Vietnam War. Upon receiving the call, the 83-year-old Davis said it prompted a wave of memories of the men and women I served with in Vietnam. He added, I think often of those fateful 19 hours on June 18, 1965, and what our team did to make sure we left no man behind on that battlefield. Davis is being honored for his distinguished actions in rescuing each member of the team under his command as he repeatedly sprinted across a rice paddy in the face of enemy fire. Even after being wounded when an enemy grenade shattered his hand, he continued to fire his rifle with his pinky finger and managed to ensure that his entire team survived. And while he was awarded the uh, Silver Star Medal for his actions that day, his team has long argued that he deserved the Medal of Honor. The White House is yet to announce the date for Davis Medal Ceremony, but he will receive the Medal of Honor. In the ever-expanding nanny state, back in 1975, then-Senator Joe Biden famously introduced a bill that called for the sunsetting of a federal programs, of all federal programs, including Social Security and Medicare. His argument for ending, or at least revolting uh, on these issues, these government subsidy programs, was that they were costing the government too much money and were busting the federal budget. Well, Biden's proposed bill obviously never passed, though he uh, that didn't stop him from bringing up the issue again in the mid-1980s and again in 1995 when he lamented Congress's lack of action on his original proposal. Too bad the version of Biden in the White House today has completely and thoroughly rejected his original views on government fiscal responsibility. Well, now he sees budget busting subsidies like Medicaid as not only an absolutist federal program where no financial constraints should be considered, but he wants to expand Medicaid. He aims to free funds uh, from the the constraints, rather, of merely helping to pay medical expenses so the money can be used for groceries, too. Under the guise of promoting better overall health, the administration contends that allowing Medicaid recipients to use funds to purchase food will help decrease expensive medical interventions. There is steady uh, already rather a federal government food subsidy program to help those in poverty. And it arguably bears much of the blame for today's obesity epidemic. Never mind the fact that uh, they want to expand the federal government nanny state. In other news, Senator J.D. Vance has called for answers on Monday over the environmental hazard induced by the Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, earlier this month. The derailment, which occurred on the 3rd of February, started a fire that lasted for several days. Local and state officials moved to evacuate all residents within one mile of the crash and started a controlled burn of the chemicals to lower the risk of an explosion. Vinyl chloride, a carcinogen that can contaminate water supplies, was released from five train cars 
in the form of a massive plume of dark smoke that was visible in eastern Ohio and western Pennsylvania. Vance, who was inaugurated to his first term in the Senate last month, said in a statement that his office will investigate reports from citizens of East Palestine with respect to environmental and health impacts from the controlled burn. While those plumes of smoke are now gone, many questions remain, he uh, commented. We continue to monitor environmental reports from multiple agencies about the quality of the air and water in the region. I've heard alarming anecdotes about contaminated waterways and effects on wildlife. The Chinese spy balloon reportedly flew near our Middle Eastern bases last fall, and at least one is dead and eight were injured after a U-Haul truck driver's violent rampage in New York City. President Biden was, uh, has fired the architect of the Capitol amid unethical behavior allegations, and the U.S. Army says wokeness is not a primary driver of its current recruitment struggles, after new surveys showed that young people are far more concerned about their safety and about putting their lives on hold if they were to join the force. Last year, the Army fell about 25 percent short of its goals to recruit 60,000 new soldiers. To find out uh, what is causing the recruitment slump, the Army conducted a series of surveys over four months last spring and summer. Hundreds of thousands of kids never returned to school. That's post-pandemic. For some electric vehicle owners, recharging now is costing more than filling up. And a former MSNBC host says the network reprimanded her for criticizing Hillary Clinton. Critics say he gets us. Uh, the ad reactions prove changing the gospel doesn't change hearts. Read more on that in The Federalist. Well, on this day in history, 1876, inventors Alexander Graham Bell and Elisha Gray, they apply separately for patents related to the telephone. The U.S. Supreme Court eventually rules that Bell is the rightful inventor. 1913, labor leader Jimmy Hoffa is born in Brazil, Indiana. 1920, the League of Women Voters is founded by Carrie Chapman Catt in Chicago during a convention of the National American Women's Suffrage uh, Association. 1929, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Seven members and associates of Chicago's Northside Gang are gunned down in a hail of bullets resembling a firing squad. Al Capone is widely believed to have ordered the hit, but is never officially tied to the killings. 1931, the original Dracula film starring Bela Lugosi is released. 1948, uh, NASCAR holds its first race for modified stock cars on a 3.2-mile course in Daytona Beach, Florida. 1962, First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy gives a tour of the White House shown on television, which three out of four Americans watched. 1967, Aretha Franklin records her cover of Otis Redding's Respect at Atlantic Records in New York City. 1989, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, the first supreme leader of Iran, issues a death sentence on British writer Salman Rushdie for his authorship of the book Satanic Verses. And on this day in history, 2013, Oscar Pistorius, who had recently competed in both the Olympics and Paralympics as a runner, is arrested over the shooting death of his model actress girlfriend. He's currently serving a 13-year prison term for culpable homicide. 2014, a federal judge in Virginia overturned the state's ban on same-sex marriage. The decision marks the first time that a same-sex marriage ban had been overturned in a southern state. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, a gunman identified as a former student opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle in Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School near Fort Lauderdale, Florida, killing 17 people in the nation's deadliest school shooting since the attack in Newtown, Connecticut 
more than five years earlier. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, California Democrat Senator Dianne Feinstein has announced that she will not seek re-election in 2024. Feinstein said in a statement today, I am announcing today I will not run for re-election in 2024, but intend to accomplish as much for California as I can through the end of the next year when my term ends. I campaigned in 2018 on several priorities for California and the nation, preventing and combating wildfires, mitigating the effects of record-setting drought, reporting to the uh, responding to the homelessness crisis and ensuring all Americans have access to affordable, high quality health care. She added that Congress has enacted legislation on all of these topics over the past several years, but more needs to be done. And I will continue these efforts. End quote. Feinstein, who was first elected to the Senate in 1992, is the oldest serving senator at age 89. Well, masking kids doesn't work to slow COVID. That's what uh, Dr. Mark Siegel says. Well, the Fox News medical contributor examined the new Omicron subvariant, prompting many cities to reinstate mask mandates for children. And he weighed in on Buffalo Bill's safety, Damar Hamlin's condition. Well, the stance by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on face masks has taken many twists and turns throughout the COVID pandemic. After initially claiming face coverings weren't necessary, the CDC changed course in April of 2020, calling on all Americans, even children as young as two years old, to mask up. Well, that September, then CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield, he said during a Senate hearing that face masks are the most important, powerful health tool we have, even suggesting that they might offer more protection than vaccines. Well, those recommendations likely played a large part in 39 U.S. states eventually enacting mask mandates. Well, now a new scientific review suggests that widespread masking may have done little to no good, nothing to curb the transmission of COVID-19. The review titled Physical Interventions to Interrupt or Reduce the Spread of Respiratory Viruses was led by 12 researchers from esteemed universities around the world. Published by Cochrane Library, the review dug into the findings of 78 randomized controlled trials to determine whether physical interventions, including face masks and hand washing, lessened the spread of respiratory viruses. Well, it wasn't surprising to some, surprising to others. When comparing the use of medical surgical masks to wearing no masks, the review found that wearing a mask may have uh, may make little to no difference in how many people caught a flu-like illness, COVID-like illness, nine studies of uh, 276,912 people, and probably makes little or no difference on how many people have flu or COVID confirmed by a laboratory test. There were six studies on that subject. Next, the review compared medical surgical masks to N95 respirators, Um, And they found that wearing N95 P2 respirators probably makes little to no difference in how many people have confirmed flu, five studies on that, and may make little to no difference in how many people catch flu-like illness, again, five studies, or respiratory illness, citing three studies. The 78 studies looked at participants from countries of all income levels. Data was gathered during the H1N1 flu pandemic of 2009, non-epidemic flu season, epidemic flu seasons up to 2016, and the COVID-19 pandemic, the study authors wrote. Well, the doctors say the review had some key limitations. 
The new findings seem to call into question the CDC's enthusiastic embrace of widespread masking. However, Dr. Mark Siegel, professor of medical, uh, medicine rather at NYU uh, Langone Medical Center, uh, pointed out a key limitation. The researchers focus primarily on randomized trials, but most of the studies that have been done on masks are population studies. There are very few randomized trials on masks. In a randomized trial, researchers place participants in different groups and observe the results in a controlled environment. By contrast, population-based studies measure outcomes in a real-world setting. The study authors did admit to some limitations and a risk of bias, including the low, low number of people who followed mass guidance and the wide variation of outcomes. The results might change when further evidence becomes available, they wrote. But Dr. Siegel, he says he believes that while masks might be effective on an individual level, they don't work as well on a population level. If you're going to mandate something, you have to be sure of consistency across the population. As of right now, no U.S. states have mask mandates in place. Well, on Sunday, New York dropped its statewide mask requirements in hospitals, leaving the decision up to individual facilities. Many health care facilities are currently still requiring them, which is the case in most uh, hospitals and medical environments here in the uh, in the state of Oregon. Well, crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border fell below 130,000 January of this year, a 42 percent drop, 42 percent drop compared to December of last year. They're now at their lowest number since the first full month of Joe Biden's presidency. The drop signals that recent initiatives by the administration may be working to quell illegal crossings. I think it points to the fact that the model we have put forward here can really dramatically change migratory patterns and migratory behavior. That's what one anonymous border official told Axios. In early January, the White House extended Title 42, a policy first adopted by former President Donald Trump, Uh, to restrict asylum seekers from the Mexico uh, border under a public health rationale. President Biden's revision permitted up to 30,000 people from Haiti, Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua to enter America lawfully with the backing of a financial sponsor while expelling those here illegally. Members of the Customs and Border Protection Agency are now confirming that the intervening months have witnessed a 97 percent drop in border crossings from these nations Since the peak in mid-December on Friday, reports emerged that White House officials were considering a plan to overhaul America's asylum adjudication system to expedite work at the border processing centers. Part of the developing uh, legislation would include unique procedures based on an applicant's nationality, giving preference to individuals from countries with historically high approval ratings. Public figures are openly discussing how Senator John Fetterman, the Democrat from Pennsylvania, is facing permanent mental challenges a month after he was sworn in and a Democrat uh, Democratic Senate majority secured. Fetterman suffered a stroke in May of uh, 22, just ahead of the Pennsylvania Democratic primary. The severity of his condition was only revealed the following month, but he continued to run for Senate while his campaign insisted he would be fit for office. His health problems became a source of public concern when he turned uh, in a troubling debate performance against Dr. Mehmet Oz, despite the assistance of closed captioning. Well, since defeating Oz, it appears uh, many of Americans' worst suspicions rather, about his health have been confirmed. 
Betterman, who's been hospitalized since Wednesday, has also struggled for weeks to adjust to his role as a senator, to the point he still needs technological aid to help him communicate with colleagues and his own staff. On Friday, the New York Times released an article titled Fetterman Recovering After Stroke Labors to Adjust to Life in the Senate detailed his struggles with quotes from senators and staff with the admission that the campaign set back his stroke recovery. But his adjustments to serving in the Senate has been made vastly more difficult by the strains of his recovery, which left him with a physical impairment and serious mental health challenges that have rendered the transition extraordinarily challenging, even with the accommodations that have been made to help him adapt, according to the Times. He's made the uh, he's had to come to terms with the fact that he may have uh, set himself back permanently by not taking the recommended amount of rest during the campaign. But the New York Times is being criticized for only now choosing to report on what seemed obvious to many during the campaign. How did we let our children get manipulated and mutilated like this? That's a question a whistleblower asked after pulling back the curtain on transgender treatments for minors. So that's going to be the questions uh, generating uh, about uh, 2023 and the years preceding it. When doctors across America doled out hormones like they were Halloween candy and even in some cases removed minors functional body parts. Don't take my word for it. Jamie Reed, who described herself as a progressive and who says she is married to a trans man, wrote a terrifying account of her experience while working at a Midwestern medical center focusing on transgenderism. In her explosive article in the Free Press, Reed, who was formerly employed at the Washington University Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital, describes a world where medical professionals rushed to encourage minors' gender transitions without any concern about the life-changing consequences of the treatments. Many encounters with patients emphasized to me how little these young people understood the profound impacts changing gender would have on their bodies and minds, writes Reed. But the center downplayed the negative consequences and emphasized the need for transition. Reed's expose comes at a time when, thankfully, lawmakers are beginning to realize that we can't count on doctors to protect children. Lawmakers in Georgia, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota and Kansas have introduced legislation that would put limits on gender transition treatments for minors. In Utah, Republican Governor Spencer Cox just signed legislation banning surgeries and hormone treatments for minors. This surge comes after a growing awareness of the issue. In 21, Arkansas banned hormones and gender transition surgeries for minors. And a year later, Alabama followed suit. Arizona bans gender transition surgeries for minors. And in Texas, Governor Greg Abbott declared that certain gender transition uh, medical interventions for minors could be considered child abuse. And parents could be investigated um, and uh, risk losing custody of their children. Reed's account makes clear how uh, crucial such laws are to protecting children. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue to wind our way through the news and uh, take a look at a request for prayer from a Nigerian pastor, and we'll look in on the Asbury revival. Is it continuing, and what might we expect? We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a pair of Dutch F-35 fighter jets have intercepted a formation of Russian military planes that were flying near Polish airspace, according to defense officials. 
The incident happened on Monday as the then-unknown aircraft approached the Polish NATO area of responsibility from Kaliningrad, a Russian enclave on the Baltic Sea. Reuters quoted the Netherlands Defense Ministry as saying, After identification, it turned out to be three aircraft of Russian uh, Il-20M Kut-A uh, that were escorted by two Su-27 flankers. Netherlands officials reportedly added the Dutch F-35s uh, escorted the formation from a distance and handed over the escort to NATO partners. Well, the um, NATO's name for um, the Russian uh, planes, rec- reconnaissance aircraft, while the Su-27 flankers and Sukhau Su-28 jets, according to Reuters, is also a part of the um, the airplanes. Well, the Polish defense ministry told Politico that the planes were traveling over international waters and none of its airspace had been interrupted. Dutch F-35 stationed at the 22nd tactical air base uh, were scrambled on Monday in order to identify and intercept the uh, aircraft from Russia that were operating near Polish airspace. The incident comes as tensions remain high between NATO and Russia over Moscow's invasion of Ukraine and what is expected to be an um, increase uh, in their tactics in the near term. Missouri GOP Senator Josh Hawley has introduced a pair of bills aimed at protecting kids online, one that would implement an age requirement for social media usage and another that would study the harmful impact of social media on children. Well, the first bill is titled Making Age Verification Technology Uniform, Robust and Effective Act or Mature Act. It would um, it would place a minimum age requirement of 16 years of age for all social media users, preventing platforms from offering accounts to those who do not meet the age threshold. Well, Holly's other measure, titled the Federal Social Media Research Act, would commission a government report on the harm of social media for kids. Well, that study, according to the senator's office, would examine the uh, and track social media's effect on children over 10 years. Children suffer every day from the effects of social media, Holly said in the statement. At best, big tech companies are neglecting our children's health and monetizing their personal information. At worst, they are complicit in their exploitation and manipulation, end quote. It's time to give parents the weapons they need to strike back, he added. Well, that starts with an age restriction for social media and its long past time for well, uh, well-funded research on the scale of the problem. We must set the precedent that these companies can no longer take advantage of our children. Well, the Mature Act, according to the statement from Hawley's office, would hold social media companies accountable by creating an audit process and private right of action. Well, the majority of social media companies currently have an age requirement of 13 years old, but several officials, including U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, uh, has um, warned that age 13 and younger is too early for America's kids to be using social media platforms at all. I personally, based on that data, I've seen um, uh, believe that 13 year olds, uh, 13 years rather, is too early, Murthy said last week. Again, the Surgeon General. It's time when it's uh, really important for us to be thoughtful about what's going into how we think about their own self-worth and how their relationships and the skewed and often distorted environment of social media that it often does a disservice to many of those children. Well, earlier this month, Representative Chris Stewart, a Republican out of Utah, introduced a bill that would bar social media companies from allowing children under the age of 16 to use their platforms. Stewart's bill, the Social Media Child Protection Act, 
would require big tech companies to verify the age of their users, including by using methods such as ID verification. Approximately 38 percent of children between the ages of 8 and 12 and 84 percent of teenagers between the ages of 13 and 18 are using social media, according to the Common Sense Census, media use by tweens and teens. Children in the age range of 8 to 12 years old are on social media for an average of 18 minutes per day, the report says, from 2021, while teenagers spend about an hour and a half every day. Tweens usage increased by five percentage points during the COVID-19 pandemic among those who said they use social media every day, whereas the proportion of teens who use social media daily stayed approximately the same. There was an urgent plea that you can find at Christianity Today from Oscar Amachina. It was an op-ed. He's a contributor to Christianity Today. And this is what he wrote on Tuesday, February 14th. I beg anyone who comes across this op-ed to pray urgently for Nigeria. The bloodshed in my country continues to rise daily, and corruption has eaten deep into every sector of government, including the judiciary. Even the Supreme Court is colluding with the corrupt government and financial actors in rigging the upcoming elections. In less than two weeks from now, Nigerians will be going to the polls to elect another president that will replace the current president, Buhari. This present administration has made my country hell on earth. Christians are slaughtered every day, and the government pretends like nothing is happening. Nigeria has become one of the worst places for a Christian to live, and the international community continues to remain silent. Many hope to bring a lasting change by voting out this bad government, but we need nothing less than divine intervention. Some years ago, I attended a meeting in in the Kebi State, northwest Nigeria, where the Commissioner of Environment told us pastors uh, to remove the speakers from our churches. When I objected, he said to me, Don't you know that Christians are second-class citizens in this state? I have since learned that he was exactly right. In 1986, Sidney Granville Elton, a missionary to Nigeria, prophesied concerning Nigeria, saying Nigeria and Nigerians will be known all over the world for corruption. Your name, Nigeria, will sink for corruption, will stink for corruption. But after a while, a new phase will come, a phase of righteousness. People from the nations of the world will hold a Nigerian and say, we want to follow you to your nation to go and learn righteousness. We have been known for our corruption and wickedness ever since. Pray that God should give us sufficient grace to pass through all the remaining phases of these challenges and help us to stand firm even when death stares us in the faith. Our love for God should not wax and wane and depend on our earthly circumstances. It is our desire that the United States should include Nigeria in the list of countries of special concern. But it seems like President Biden doesn't understand the severity of the human and religious rights violations that are taking place in Nigeria. Pray for the unity of Christians in the country. We are divided along denominational, ethnic and tribal lines and are now finding it difficult to speak with one another and to speak with one voice. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Mark 3.25. Pray that the United States government comes to the rescue of Nigerian Christians. Pray that God gives us the grace and wisdom to vote rightly. Pray that God gives us a righteous leader, a leader who will defend our religious freedom and a leader who will use public funds for the good of the people. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. 
But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Proverbs 29, 2. Christians in Nigeria have been mourning for the past eight years. We hope God will bring an end to our mourning. We covet all of your prayers. We have a tremendous opportunity to remember the church in Nigeria, the persecution they are suffering as if we ourselves are being persecuted. And this uh, this pastor, this uh, writer for Christianity Today, asks us to remember to pray for the church in Nigeria, to pray for the upcoming elections as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to our final segment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Yesterday, I talked about the revival in Asbury, not just the revival that's taking place now as we are looking in uh, many from a great distance, but what happened in 1970 that has so many excited about what may be happening in Asbury at the University in Kentucky today. Well, back in 1970, there was a revival on that college campus. The Asbury Revival of 1970 happened on February 3rd after Dean Custer B. Reynolds invited students to share personal testimonies during a chapel service. It was as simple as that. What started was a seven-day revival that lasted around 144 hours. There was nonstop rejoicing in the chapel, and classes were canceled for a week. Even after classes resumed on the 10th of February, the Hughes Auditorium remained open for prayer and testimony. It was reported half the student body of 1,000 were part of witnessing teams sent out from Asbury to churches and colleges throughout the country. Students visited Southwestern Seminary in March of 1970 and spoke after a chapel service, launching a revival there. One writer said... uh, Uh, wrote his thesis on the revival at Southwestern and also wrote about another campus revival at Wheaton College where God moved in dramatic ways. He said the revival came during a time of intensity in America, particularly among students. Demonstrations were taking place at universities nationwide. In May of 1970, several unarmed students were shot and killed at Kent State University. Multiple universities canceled spring commencement exercises for fear of violence, he said. Of course, there is much division and many protests across America today. The divide is deep across political, racial and cultural lines. But there is light shining on the tiny community of Wilmore, Kentucky. Many colleges are coming to Asbury's doorstep now, including groups from Ohio Christian and the University of Kentucky, among many others. Large crowds were expected over the weekend from surrounding universities and some from even further away along the friends and relatives of students to see what revival looks like firsthand. God began pouring out his love among students in a profound way, wrote Matt Barnes, the vice president of formation at Asbury University on Facebook. The students continued praying and worshiping, even though chapel had concluded. One sophomore from Dallas has been overwhelmed by what's happening throughout the past three days. And now many uh, days to follow. The Lord has revealed himself and his unfailing love and faithfulness to everyone who has stepped through the doors of Hughes Auditorium. He is radically transforming lives. The Holy Spirit is at work in this place and all around the world through our prayers. And he has not stopped any time and we don't expect he'll stop any time soon. All glory to God. Well, as much as revival as it has been a movement of God's taking place on the small Christian campus, and it's not over yet, we're being told. Uh, one student, and or I should say a former student, an Asbury alum and former employee, 
was moved by what she was witnessing as well. It is awesome to see students allowing the Holy Spirit to do these this meaningful work in their lives, she said. This is exactly the reason I love Asbury. As an alumnus and also a former employee, it is encouraging and humbling to see this fruit of the Spirit blossoming on campus and see evidence that the hearts of students and campus leadership are in the right posture. John Mark David Baker also wrote of what he observed in Asbury. I went to Asbury last night. I interviewed one of the staff of the university who led the congregation last night. She said that the move began with a sermon about living from the love of God, allowing yourself to be loved by God and everything else will flow from there. Is the message that uh, was, uh, was preached. The sermon ended and chapel was dismissed, but a core group of students stayed to worship the Lord. Before long, this small group snowballed as word began to spread that the presence of the Lord was there. And while I was there, they emphasized repentance, consecration to the Lord, and physical healing. I was able to minister healing to a young couple sitting next to me. I had several prophetic words from them, and the Holy Spirit deeply touched them. The emphasis has been on worship. The instruments were nearly inaudible, and the voices led the music. Here are a few things I'm uh, processing. God always honors hunger. Revival rarely begins with a large crowd. It seems to begin with a small, fervent group who pray, believing that God will answer. Revival exalts Jesus. Revival leads to holiness of life and consecration to the Lord. There were a few other thoughts I had regarding the experience, but I would encourage you. God wants this for us, too. God wants this for our churches. He's looking for people who will consecrate themselves to seek him and believe in faith that our Father will respond to our hunger. Welcome the Holy Spirit, the holy disruption. Another uh, contributor to uh, Christianity Today points out that in the uh, Osbury University newspaper we read, very few seats remain empty, but people crowd the walls, the floor, and the balcony. It's been almost 60 hours since a pure Holy Spirit revival broke out. Others declare they have never seen the student chapel with so many people. It started in a normal chapel service where there was a confession of sin by a student and 30 people stayed behind to seek the Lord. As we browse social media and look up hashtags such as Asbury Revival, we cannot miss all the criticisms, judgments and doubts about what is happening. The critical voices seem to be very loud, shouting out, shouting over some of the rejoicing by others. The services have been not... uh, Uh, four or five hours, but virtually nonstop for a hundred plus hours. Some are decrying this as emotionalism. This sort of thing is not just breaking the mold, but making a lot of people feel uncomfortable and uh, convicted. Here are a few reasons why we often doubt when revival takes place, when it goes beyond our ability or our experience, when it goes against our rational thinking, when it's um, something new. And he writes, the work of God was so powerful and new that he doubted God's work. We read again and again in his journal, referring to uh, a minister, John Wesley, early in his ministry, started doubting the work of God in his midst. He was later part of the great Methodist revival in England. We read again in his journal, in that hour, we found God with us as at the first. Some fell prostrate upon the ground. Others burst out as with constant into loud praise and thanksgiving. And many openly testified there had been so, uh, no such day in this uh, as this since January, the first preceding 
God had mercy on Wesley and the move of God continued. If the presence of God is not with us, are we grieving him? May we humble ourselves and pursue him as our first love. We can have mercy and help um, help you in carrying forth his purposes through the revivals he initiates. And is God sending revival to Asbury College? At the very least, we know something strange is going on. May we be careful not to doubt, grieve, or criticize God's work. Well, many eyes are focusing there. Much uh, speculation, much uh, efforts to understand what's happening. What we do know is young people are crying out to God. There's repentance, confession, consecration, and that is a good thing. And there are similar events taking place in other uh, campuses as well. Lee is a, a another example. Continue to pray for these young people that what God intends to accomplish will be accomplished and it won't become uh, simply for show as others observe from great distances. Well, I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, engineering a portion of the program, and Sam Maupin for engineering the rest of today's program. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.